Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hello to you. I hope all well in your world and that you've enjoyed every moment of the past week. My guest today is one of Australia's most enduring singers. He was a major pop star in the late 60s who went on to become one of the country's first singer-songwriters. He's been impacting the sound of the Australian landscape across seven decades and counting, from rock to pop to blues. Most people know him as the psychedelic rock legend that he was when he released this one. Come and see the real thing, come and see the real thing, come and see. Come and see the real thing, come and see the real thing, come and see. There's a meaning there, but the meaning there doesn't really mean a thing. Come and see the real thing, come and see the real thing. The real thing soon. Russell Morris, welcome to a breath of fresh air. It's, I know you hate the word iconic, but you are an iconic Australian performer. You've been around since the year dot, and you just keep getting better and better every single year. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think I started just after the dinosaurs. How did you get started? I was doing a diploma of economics and accountancy and law, and uh, some friends formed the band, and I used to go and watch them rehearse and their singer got poached by someone else and they said do you want to sing with us just for the Christmas holidays so I joined them and sang for the Christmas holidays and that was it I never went back and finished my diploma. Wow your parents must have been pretty upset. No they were fantastic that's the great part about my parents I'm the Gaylord Fokker of the music business. What does that mean? Well when I was a young kid that uh, movie Meet the Fockers I would endeavour to get into every single team and I was always the last picked. I was I was that kid, pick me, pick me, and I was the last one standing and by default I'd had to go, go to one of the other teams. And my grandmother and my mother revelled in any minor success I had. Like if I came third in the egg and spoon race and happened to get a ribbon, they would pin it on the fridge and everyone that came round, they would show them. So I knew in my heart of hearts that I was a failure, but it didn't matter because they just embraced everything I did, whether I failed or anything, as long as I tried. And that sort of got into my nature, I think. And that's how I started doing what I was doing. And I have fear of attempting things, but because of my earlier upbringing, I don't have fear of failure. So I always give it my best shot whether I make it or not. Like for that reason, I'm a rotten golfer. I'm a terrible tennis player. That's <laughs> awful. Russell Morris, you're only talking about sport. That doesn't say anything about you academically. You were obviously very competent. The reason I got through school is because I was a legacy boy. My father died after the war, like when I was two years old. So legacy really helped push me through. I wasn't very good academically either because I couldn't concentrate for more than 10 minutes. Just explain what legacy is. Legacy was for children of servicemen who had passed away or had been killed in the war and they looked after us and they put us through our education. They gave the family some money to help things and if it hadn't have been for legacy, I don't think I would have gotten through my education. The music business became a a breath of fresh air and it really sort of uh, gave me a career which At the time I took it up, I was only doing it temporarily just for the fun of playing in a band. know you had a voice? No. We did one show and it was recorded. It was Battle of the Bands. And I heard it and I, I went to the band. I said, I'm leaving. And they said, why? And I said, I, I heard my voice. I hate it. It sounded like this. 
I said, it just sounds like I'm singing through my nose all the time. And they said, no, no, we like your voice. And they had to talk me out of pulling the plug. So I persevered. Russell spent the next little while working on that nasally voice, but it probably mattered little because it was the era of the Beatles and no one could really hear how you were singing above the din of screaming girls. Back in those days, there was no such thing as foldback. There was the speakers pointing out to the audience and you had to try and sing in tune. So it became almost automatic pilot. You had to have an internal pitch that kept you on key. You were doing very well, weren't you? Yes, but doing very well as, a, as, as smoke and mirrors in the music business. We were probably earning $20 a week each. It's, it was a very hand-to-mouth existence in those days and very primitive. So you obviously wanted more? I did, and the turning point came because I'd given up my education, mind you. I only had one more year to go. I was doing this and I thought, I'm going to have to go back to college. And we were up in Sydney performing and our drummer got very sick and he started throwing up and I said, you've got to go to the hospital. He said, no, I'm all right. And I said, you've got to stop drinking so much. And he said, I haven't had a drink. He said, I didn't drink. I don't know what's wrong. I said, if you don't go, I'm quitting the band. So he went to hospital. Next minute they rang us and said he's had a brain hemorrhage. And um, while we were there, our manager was up there and he was managing Ronnie Byrne. Smiley, you're out in the world today. Smiley, you're all on your own. I said, listen, we need some money. Eric's in hospital. We'll have to get a temporary drummer. And they took me out to dinner. And I was a boy from Richmond, the working suburbs of Melbourne, and our meals were usually chops and potatoes. or And some peas. Peas and all that, those very standard meals. Yeah. And they took me out to dinner. And I sat down and Ronnie said, what would you like to have? And I said, I don't know. It was an Italian restaurant, which was really, really... Oh, suave for me. (laughs) And he said, why don't you have some oysters Kilpatrick? And I said, what's that? And he said, what about lasagna? And I said, I've never had that either. So I had oysters Kilpatrick and lasagna. And when I ate them, I thought, for the rest of my life, I will always try every type of food, no matter what it is. And then I thought, how come these guys are living like this and we're living on bananas and yogurt? So the band got another drummer and he got into my ear after a while and he said, mate, you should go solo. Ronnie Burns at the time was already an established pop star in Australia? Oh, yeah, he was big. He was a big, big star. Him, John Farnham, Normie Rowe, they were all pretty well established at that stage. John had had Sadie and all that. Sadie, the cleaning lady With trusty scrubbing brush and pail of water going to Johnny Young, who was had been a big star, and saying, what should I do? I want to leave the band and I want to go solo. And he virtually patted me on the head and said, mate, when you grow up to be a big 
pop star like me, he said, I don't think you should. I think you should just stay with the band. And I ignored that advice and went on alone. And then one day he saw me performing on one of the TV shows and all the girls were like really enthusiastic. So he approached me after the show and said, I've got some songs you might like to hear. And Ian Meldrum was with me. Then he played us a couple of songs. We said, yeah, they're nice. We like those, but we're looking for something different. Have you got anything different? So I've got this song I wrote as a joke for a band, but it's not a solo artist song. Play it to us. And he played it to us. And it was the real thing. And we went, that's what we want. And he said, you're crazy. He said, that's not a song for a solo artist. And we said, we beg to differ. And he said, all right, well, it should be done like this. And Ian Meldrum said, no, you're banned from the studio. I see it another way. And the total architect of that song was Ian Meldrum, who took it from Johnny's version was was like pictures of matchstick men, rock and roll all the way through, to something that goes from hurdy-gurdy man to I am the walrus to hey Jude. That was the idea he had in his head. And he achieved it pretty well. Australian music journalist who became one of the country's top record producers. He used to host the national music TV program Countdown and had managed Russell's first band, Somebody's Image. He'd also been the roadie for another highly acclaimed band called The Group. He'd been asking them over and over again to let him manage them. And they just kept laughing at him saying, you're not a manager. He's saying, but I could produce your records. And they just laughed. So he thought, here's this young raw band So he approached us and said, can I manage you? Can I produce your records? And can I get you a record deal? And being incredibly naive, we went, yeah, let's do it. He would turn out to be one of the greatest record producers this country has ever had. It's really serendipity in play there that brought you two together. Well, I often believe in that. My theory of life, we're a bucket of marbles and we're tipped out at the top of the hill. Some people go down the hill too fast. But on the way, your marbles are always going to reach their level. They're always going to get to where they're meant to go. And if you think of the odds of meeting someone like Ian Meldrum, who had never produced a record, never managed a band, or never done anything resembling PR, that you would say, yes, take my career under your wing, and he would turn out to be an unbelievable record producer, like incredible. I reckon I could walk out into the street and pick 15,000 people and not one of them would be able to get any anywhere yeah. close to what yeah. he was, yeah. Yeah. I had no idea he started off as the group's roadie. Not yeah. whatsoever. Amazing. So Ian Meldrum picks up the song The Real Thing given to you by Johnny Young and he turns it into this massive hit. Yes. Talk to me about that. Well, it didn't take long to record. I think the band probably had six run-throughs and when they got to finally the last time and they really it had really gelled the drummer went and started playing double time the engineer went to push the button to say okay guys thanks we'll fade it from there and then went no let them have some fun so they just kept playing and playing and playing and then the drummer just did a fill and threw his sticks down ian rang me probably that night or the next night and said i've got a brilliant idea we're going to make the record six and a half minutes long I said, Ian, this is my first solo record. I'm trying to get airplay. They're not going to play it. He said, yes, they will. He said, because I'm going to make it like an EP. 
four tracks, two on each side, and there was a little, like an almost clear line in the middle where they would swap over with no sound and then go into the next one. And he said that divider there, radio people can watch it, and when it goes to that divider, they'll know this is the time to fade it. So if they want to play the whole thing, they'll play it. If they don't, they'll fade it there. And it was a genius idea. The record company wanted to hear it, and they said, how long is this going to take? Because the band took very little time to record it. My vocals, I think I probably had four run-throughs. But then the rest of the time was Ian putting sound effects in the end, and it took forever. So they ring from Essendon, which was the airport then, and we're on our way. So we're waiting, and Ian's so nervous, and he gets drunk. <laughs> they roll up, and we put it on and play it really loud. And Ian was right. They hated it. They turned on their heel and said, well, well, we will ring you tomorrow, and left, went to their hotel and flew back to Sydney and rang back and said, it's the biggest load of rubbish we've ever heard in our lives. We will not release that record. So Ian and I got in the car and drove to Sydney and went to all the radio stations, which you could do in those days, and we'd knock on the door, who's your program manager? We've got this record and played it to him. What Would you play that? Man, this is incredible, you know? And we got all of the people up there to sign a petition. So we then gave it to EMI, and EMI reluctantly released it, and it became the biggest thing they'd ever had. released in 1969, it was a massive hit in Australia and has become a rock classic. It also found success in the US, reaching the top of the charts in Chicago, Houston and New York City. Hang in for more. This is A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. The real thing ran for 6 minutes 12 seconds, which of course was totally unheard of in the days of two to three minute radio airplays. It was a swirling psychedelic collage of music and sound effects that included an archive recording of a World War II Hitler youth choir. The song concludes with the cry Sig Heil and the cataclysmic sound of an atomic bomb explosion. is reported to have cost $10,000, which was the typical budget for an entire album at the time. What did it feel like to have a number one having gone through all of that? It was a double-edged sword. It was wonderful, but it was also stressful. Like, for instance, my grandmother and mother embraced it over, like, so much. My grandmother and mother were so proud because for all their lives they'd been telling people that I was really good and I never knew that I wasn't. And all of a sudden, miracle of miracles come along and I have this big hit record. So I would come home because I was still living at home and there'd be like 13 girls sitting on the front fence. So I'd say hello to them and sign some autographs. Then I'd go inside and there'd be 13 girls sitting around the house having cups of tea that my mum and grandmother were making them. And I never got any peace and it drove me insane. And it was horrifying. And then our number was... Uh, given out. Some girls got the number and then spread it around and sold it to other girls and their phone never stopped ringing and my poor grandmother was constantly running. Oh, it was just horrible. 
they were the things that were really awful. The rest of it was fine, you know. But still, there wasn't a real lot of money in music business those days. My biggest payday, I was top of the bill in Sydney, working at the Horton Pavilion, the Rayovac show, and I thought I'd finally made the big time. I got $500 for the show. You're right. I mean, we thought that you had a number one hit out there and the girls are hounding you everywhere that you must be just raking it in. You're buying yourself cars and clothes and houses and everything else. And if that had been in America, that's what you would have been doing because all of those guys who cracked it there at that same time were rolling in it. That's right, and much greater volumes of record sales. But you did take off and go to America, didn't you? I went to England first. Couldn't get anything happening. I'd I'd recorded with Cat Stevens' band and we'd done some nice tracks and a guy called Brian Lane heard about it and he liked the tracks and he said, you should go to America. He said, you're someone that should record in America. The girl that I love will be never as lonely as me And the girl that I love will give all of her loving to me she brings with the sun in her eyes will never make me blue and the girl that I love the girl that I love will be you and the girl that I hold won't be needing a reason to start cause the girl ended up going to America and recording for Warner Brothers Records and the record producer there insulted Mo Austin who was the head of Warner's and told him to mind his own something business because Mo had wanted to hear the record and uh, the guy said I'll play you the record when I feel like it so we lost the deal it was a nightmare just like that <laughs> just lost the deal just like that all the tracks were scrapped never heard of again I did a thing called Let the Music Take Over Your Head, Goodbye Mama. I think I redid Sweet Sweet Love Again. Russell, you'd had five Australian top ten singles during the late 60s and early 70s, didn't you? Yeah, I did, but never a really successful album. I had a few hits and so I decided to try my luck overseas. Can't believe I'm really meeting a girl like you on such a day Maybe I'm maybe only dreaming Miss the sun come back to stay from Bloodstone was Sweet Sweet Love. After that, the following year was 1972, you released Wings of an Eagle. Meantime, 
the real thing started climbing the charts in America. Yes, it did. It started to climb the charts and E and I argue over this forever. I wanted to go to America. He wanted to go to England. And then him and I had a, a falling out and we didn't talk for about four years after that. And everything had been set up for me to go to England. I went to England. It was terrible and I came back. Then when I had Wings of an Eagle and Sweet Sweet Love, Paul Dainty convinced me to go back again. It reached number one in Chicago and Houston and in New York. I mean, that's no small feat. Well, Wyatt died. At that stage, the major record companies tried to stamp out independent record companies. So they were refusing to press the records. And unfortunately, I was with a label called Diamond, who had obviously raised the ire of the company that was pressing there, and they wouldn't press them. So we couldn't get them out. You can't get it to any of the stores. That's what happened with the real thing in America. Oh, how disappointing. Oh, well, I believe in fate. I believe the marbles have poured out and some of them got caught halfway up the hill. And that that was what was meant to happen. Well, I'm looking out on an overcast sky in the morning. I can hear the warning as it calls to you. As the birds migrate and the wind is raised, I'll see the evil soul. Although I'm just a thorn in nature's game like you. remained in the US for the next five years. While he waited for his green card, he took up some menial jobs, including selling newspaper subscriptions and handling the mail for the KISS Army. What happened, uh, my stepfather had a heart attack and it was time to come home, so I came home. Right. Another disappointment then that you hadn't been able to complete your mission. Well, they happen. It's funny, some of the things you do, I remember when I was looking for a record deal over there, I went into the office of this man who completely put me at ease. Just absolutely fantastic guy. And he said, Russell, I know about your career. I know all the things you've recorded. He said, I love your voice. He said, I, want, I just want you to play some of the new songs you've got for me. And he said, just sit on the chair. And he said, please don't feel any pressure because I, lo- I love you already. So he sat there with his hands on the back of a chair and I played about four songs and he said, I think you could make it here. I'd like to sign you. He said, but I don't hear a hit right there for an American. He said, I've got writers here that I would like you to work with. And the guys came up and played a couple of songs and I didn't really like them. I said, "Uh, let me think about it. I went to another record company where the guys were sitting drinking scotch and smoking cigars and I played four songs and they said, love you, boy, we'll sign you. The first guy I sort of signed with, his name was Clive Davis. Oh, you're kidding. It was Clive Davis. Yeah, before Arista became ginormously big. Wow. And I just saw the Whitney Houston documentary, the acted one, the guy that played Clive Davis was a dead ringer, same personality, and he said the same things to Whitney. He must have had the same spiel that he said to everyone. <laughs> and he said to me, Russell, what's your passion musically? What do you want to do? Where you see yourself? And he was such a beautiful man. And it's come full circle because I just finished a big album with the orchestra in Melbourne and Sydney, and uh, I think it's probably the best one I've done, particularly for a live album. I just sent it to Clive and said, Clive, it's been a long time since we saw each other. I'm not looking for a record deal. I'm beyond that now. I just wanted to let you know that I'm still alive, I'm still making music, and here's my latest album that I just did. Hello, 
is stronger than you lifting his food on which way it can. A title of a Negro on your chest and a red birth mark in your side. Young ears feel the fight with your rage and the root of your head die. Hoping I'll get a reply from him, but if I don't, it doesn't matter. But I just wanted to tell him how much I really admired him. And he went on from there with Bruce Springsteen, Simon Garfunkel, and Whitney Houston. It was just never ending. So at this time, when you had seen him and the other record company, you are playing guitar, you're writing your own material, and you're singing. You're kind of a one man band, right? That's right, yes. And then. Um, sometime later, so you, you, you then come back to Australia, as you said, because your stepfather got six, and then you formed the Russell Morris Band. Yeah, well, I, I had to do something. I, I, I'd given up brain surgery, so I couldn't go back to that. <laughs> so I thought, well, we'll give it a, a, a go. And I remember, I, I often talk to Daryl about this, Daryl Braithwaite. I said, I went to see one of your shows, Daryl, and I said, he was a semi-trailer outside with all your equipment and I came in and the lighting and everything and I thought how can you possibly compete with this I've got to go on the road probably with a guy with a torch shining on me you know and and the PA they had so I had to start again really really simply we had a, a small van I had two dedicated roadies a sound guy and a dedicated roadie who be, went on to become really significant in the music business one is Grant Walsh, who mixed John Farnham all his whole career. Right. And the other one was a guy called Brett Allen, who went, went, ended up going overseas and working for Mink DeVille, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, and now he runs this huge rental company in Los Angeles because um, he bought, with every penny he earned, he bought rare guitars and rare amps and things like that. So I had really good people. I was lucky enough to select really good people. And my bands were always really good. So we slowly built up and built up and built up and built up, but we couldn't quite have a hit record that allows you to go off the road. So if you can't go off the road, you've got to continually work to keep the boys alive. But you were packing out the houses on the road everywhere. Australia hadn't forgotten about Russell Morris at all. That's right. We did really, really well, but we really needed a new hit. We needed a hit that was going to take the country by storm. We couldn't quite find it. And at the end, things, the expenses became greater than the money coming in. And we ended up, I ended up going broke. I lost so much, like lost my house and all that. And the boys, they just had to move on. And it was just really, really hard. And I formed another band, The Rubes. We put that together. No hits either. Big hits buy you creative selection. And that's why big acts stay big because they only do huge shows. They don't have to work down in every little bar and every little club to keep everyone alive. And if you keep doing that, you overexpose yourself right. and then you become like yesterday's slippers. That didn't happen with you, though, did it? Yeah, it happened with the Rubes and we broke up. Right. And I couldn't get work. It was the in excesses and things were coming up. And I was really old hat. Russell was stuck, but his luck turned around when he formed a trio with fellow pop stars Ronnie Burns and Daryl Cotton. In 2001, vocalist Jim Keyes replaced Ronnie Burns and the three found success. You must leave now, take what you need, what 
Don't you think the last Whatever you is to keep You better grab it fast You're not as Russell manages to pull a rabbit out of a hat. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Russell Morris had formed Cotton Keys and Morris out of desperation, thinking he was an old has-been. He still yearned, however, to create something current. What happened, I... I had to look at myself. I looked at myself and I'd been writing songs and trying to... I'd done an album which I thought was absolutely fantastic. An, uh, an album called Jumpstart Diary, Sunk Without a Trace. Sometimes I get the strangest feelings And sometimes like I'm about to fall Wake up in a fever Sometimes It's like I've hit the wall Can you see I'm still People aren't interested, and I couldn't understand why people didn't like it. But never giving up as the way I am, I looked at myself and I thought, oh, what should I do musically? And I looked in the mirror and I thought, you're an old fart now. You know, you're, you can't get up there and sing pop songs. It's not going to work. So I, I thought, go back to where you started. Go back to what you started playing. Rhythm and blues, Tamla Motown and blues. Uh-huh. So I thought, so I wrote a couple of blues songs and I thought, they're okay, not great. One was called Red Hot Chili Pe- Pepper Woman or something. And I thought, no, they sound like crap, homogenized versions of, of really good American blues artists. Like I love John Lee Hooker and, and Howling Wolf. And it was like a bad copy of them. Uh-huh. I went to Sydney, I was reading the newspaper, Serendipity again, as we said before. I open up the page and here's this photograph that just goes bing and clings onto my face. There was a photo of a guy called Thomas Archer called Shark Jaws and it was his arrest photo. And I thought, this is incredible. And I started to look at all the police file photos of back in the 1918, things like that. And in those days, you didn't stand up before a, a height thing, you know, with all the gradients. And, yeah. you, know, you could sit in a chair. <laughs> This one in particular had the cop who arrested him standing behind him. <laughs> I thought, this is great. I took it home and my imagination is pretty good. One Sunday afternoon in Melbourne, it was raining and it spoke to me almost. It almost said, tell people I lived, tell people who I was, I want to live again. So I started to write the song. And instead of calling him Shark George, which I called him, I called him Shark Mouth. And I wrote the song and all of a sudden that neon light in my head went, bing, this is what I should be doing. I've got to write blues and roots about Australian characters and Australian characters will suit the blues and roots because blues and roots was around in 1920. Shark mouth was 
resurrected Russell Morris's career. Next came Van Diemen's Land, which recalled everything from convict prison ships to the First and Second World Wars. The third was 2015's Red Dirt Red Heart. The country people had done Australiana to death, and I thought, I'm going to write an album about blues and country. And when I told a couple of people, one of my ex-managers, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing a blues album. He said, why would you do blues? No one buys blues albums. I said, no one buys any of my albums. I said, I wouldn't care. I said, the last two albums have sold nothing. And he said, oh, well, what's it about? And I said, about Australiana. And he said, people hate Australiana. I said, I don't. I love it. I said, I love all the stories, so I'm going to do that. And he looked at me and said, Russell, I'll never understand you. He said, you seem to spit success in the face. So I did it. And... Again, no one wanted it, like the real thing. Not one record company wanted to touch it. Really? They figured I was old hat and they didn't want to touch it. Finally, a small label called Ambition with Robert Rigby said, no, I'll go with it. Let's go with it. And it became, it was on the charts for two years. It was the biggest biggest selling album I've ever had in my career and just uh, went platinum. It's funny how record companies sometimes just have no idea. Little honey's in the kitchen where she's cooking up a storm. No good brother-in-law's out on the porch. The sister of mine, well, she's long overdue. And I'm in the back room. Black dog blues. Well, the car won't start, so it's sitting in the drive. So damn hot, well I'm barely alive I ain't got no beer so I don't know what I'll do I'm in this back room Black dog blue I got the low down spell down Let down on sound on the ground Run down by the hellhound Black dog blue Russell was on fire and back on top of the charts. In 2019, the album Black and Blue Heart arrived. I did an album with Bernard Fanning and Nick Dedea, who, who was a wonderful producer who'd produced everybody from Bruce Springsteen to Powderfinger. And we did a, a, a like a pop rock album. So I decided to just break the mold again and just really get my head reworking again. That then brought you to a collaboration with your old mate Rick Springfield. Yeah, that, that was an interesting one because Rick and I have always been friends. He's an odd man. He's, uh, he lives on the dark side sometimes. Mm-hmm. And what I did, I'd written this song called Carmelita's Dance. When we were in America, I used to love Day of the Dead. The festival, I just loved it. So did Rick. We loved the colours and the songs and the, the gaiety. And I wrote this song, Carmelita's Dance, and I really liked it. I said to my wife, listen, I'm going to dress up in Day of the Dead makeup and a hat and sing it. You film me. I said, I'm going to I'll put it up on YouTube. And she said, what do you put it up on? I said, I'm not going to put it up as myself. I'll just put it up as unknown. She said, well, no one will ever find it. You've got to have something. And I said, oh, Jack Chrome. She said, who's that? I said, I don't know. It just came into my head. 
So really, so I put it up as Jack Chrome, sent it to Rick, and Rick contacted me and said, this has blown me away. Two days later, he sent me a song he'd written in full makeup, and he said, let's do an album together. That's how we came about doing that album. Down, down among the dead She dances gently through the bones So red, her skin so pale and her so young. They all don't see and feel the romance. They all come to stand and share their pain. They all call to her, they say. tracks Jack Chrome and the Darkness Waltz, a great collaboration between two very talented friends indeed, which then brings us up to present time, Russell, and, and probably the reason that we're chatting too is because you've got a live album out now called The Real Thing, The Symphonic Concert, where you play with a symphony orchestra and this is you with a 54-piece one. Yes, as I, I keep going back to the theme, I've always had a lot of confidence to try anything and I've always had people who have been champions. This one, I'm at a show and we come off stage and one of the guys in the band said, did you see that guy up there sitting there with his arms crossed, not laughing and just staring at us for the whole show, the guy that looked like Clive Palmer? I said, yeah, that's probably because it was him. Clive Palmer is a wealthy Australian businessman who has huge iron ore, nickel and coal holdings. Clive obviously enjoyed the show that night because three months later he was back with dozens of his friends and family. He said, I want to put you on the Sydney Opera House in Hamer Hall. Russell refused the offer because he was worried that he wouldn't be able to fill the country's premier venues. Finally... We had another meeting. I said, listen, this could be really humiliating for me. I said, Clive, it could cost you a lot of money. He went, I've got a lot of money. He said, I'll prove to you we're wrong. He said, you have no idea that you have an audience as big as it is. I had to admit to him, you were right, I was wrong. The show sold out at every venue that Russell played right across the country. Russell Morris, is there one song that you enjoy singing most? A Thousand Tons. Why? the way it builds and what it's about. I read a book called uh, One Crowded Hour about Neil Davis, the Australian war photographer, and his experiences during Vietnam and all all, all the war zones he went to. And I I tried to imagine being in a little village, your grandparents had lived there and you've got a happy family and you've got a subsistence living, whether you're living on rice and you're, you're growing your own crops, got goats and things like that. All of a sudden... A guerrilla army comes in and says, listen, you're our fellow countrymen, you've got to stick by us. If you support the government troops, you're gone. Two weeks later, the government troops come in and say, you support the guerrillas and you're dead. And all of a sudden, you're a refugee. And that song is about that dreaming of wanting to go back and take back what is yours. And the way the song builds with its intensity is, I just love the way everything falls into place. Wild horses running Because they sense it in the air When your feet are on the ground You can feel it everywhere There's a storm that's coming You can read it in the sky Because the clouds they rush around Like men caught in But everything has changed ever since they came And they took who could not hide Like the rage of a river as it washed them out to sea When the soldiers, they came in the dead of night They stole the 
long way hasn't he both personally and professionally since the days of being a young pop singer in the 60s i guess we all have haven't we today russell is the biggest selling australian blues artist of the century he's a multi-award winning performer and as you've heard he's as humble as they come thanks so much for keeping me company today i hope you'll join me again same time next week bye now because it's a beautiful day You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day, oh baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.